Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Your, your, your response, I know it's been a while, your response is, and also with you. It's really simple. <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving. Oh. Yeah, see, that wasn't that hard, was it? You forgot. I can't believe it. Um, it was about this time of year. Yeah, please keep moving in because we got people coming in and not enough room. And hey, Saturday night's got room. We'd love for you to move over to Saturday night if you could. I know the Bears aren't on the Monday this week, so you had choices. But you know, come on on Saturday night. We'd love to have you there. Uh, it was about this time of year when a guy called his son across the, the country and said, hey, um, after 45 years, I just got to tell you, your mom and I are getting a divorce. So I said, what? What are you talking about? The guy says, I'm just tired of talking about it. I don't even want to deal with it anymore. I'm tired of your mom. She's tired of me. We're getting a divorce. You call your sister and tell her I'm not dealing with it. So the guy calls his sister across the other side of the country and said, hey, mom and dad just called me. They're getting a divorce. And she said, what? Are you kidding me? No, they're not. She called him back. She hung up, called him, called dad back, said, dad, you're not doing anything until we get there. I don't know what your problem is. You're not getting divorced. You sit tight. We're going to be there. My brother and I are going to be on a plane tomorrow. We're going to be there. Man hung up the phone and said, well, the kids are coming for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and they're paying their own way. <laughs> I love Thanksgiving. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Thanksgiving is great for almost everybody, except for, of course, the turkey. Every, everybody else thinks it's awesome, and I do. It's my favorite holiday. It's my favorite holiday because, uh, well, you know, everybody's back. There's no extra services for one thing. It's not like Christmas or Easter. Uh, I will be preaching next weekend, but, you know, there's not any extras, and it's going uh, to be a lot easier. And I got my daughter and son-in-law coming up from St. Louis, and my daughter and son-in-law come. Well, we have them coming up from St. Louis. Uh, the other in-laws are in here, too. We have to duke it out to who gets them. Um, my daughter and son-in-law from Nashville are coming up. My daughter, and there better not be a son-in-law from L.A. are coming coming and my sister and brother from Dallas and my parents so we have a house full and we just really really enjoy it and I just got to tell you something okay if you got little kids right now you need to really look forward to having adult children it is wonderful to have adult children I mean for one thing I finally got boys around so we can finally have a Thursday afternoon football game as was prescribed by God in the beginning right <laughs> That's what you say. I've never been able to do that because I had all girls. It's also fun because, you know, the, I mean, the kids chip in and help. They pitch in and help. They eat their vegetables. And, and then, there's, then there's this. This is another reason to look forward to adult children. I wonder what it's going to be. to look forward to. No more of that. 
when I give my kids a present, they at least act on the outside like they like it, whatever it is, even if it's a princess sweater. The problem is that as adults, we still feel this, don't we? I mean, you know what it's like to be disappointed. If you're married, ladies, you know what it's like to tell your husband there's a pair of shoes that you want for Christmas. You tell him the size of shoes you want. Can't be any easier. And you look under the tree and there's a box and it's the size of a shoe box and it looks right, but he decided to think out of the shoe box and get you something different and you open it up and it's Nutrisystem. And you're like, oh, wait, wait, right? Or or husbands, you wanted an iPhone and there's a box and it looks like the iPhone and you open up, it's nose nose hair clippers, right? You understand what I'm talking about. We, We understand what it's like to open the gift and find the wrong thing there. And that's really a little bit about what life is about, to be honest. Because as a famous theologian once said, you can't always get what you want, right? And as adults, we learn to swallow that. We learn to, you know, eat it. And some of you are feeling this today. And I don't want to make light of it. I've said this a couple of times. I know that some of you are like college, recent college graduates. And you went and you got a job. You went, you went to get a job and there wasn't one there. And you went to school and you have this debt and you think you're going to go out and, and, and have this new life and it's just not there for you yet. And maybe you had to move back home and you didn't want to be back home and your parents didn't want you to be there. And this is all going on. And you're opening up this present and you're going, I want a toy on the inside. Or you get married and you have this Disney-esque you know, viewpoint of what marriage is going to be like and, and then you unwrap the present and you, you know, it takes a while to unwrap that present, right? And you unwrap and you unwrap and when you get down to the bottom there's disillusionment and disappointment because it's not Prince Charming or Cinderella or whoever you thought. It's actually a real person that you're married to. There's so many scenarios and I'm thinking about that as we're talking about the book of Ruth today because there's so many scenarios where we, we look at the box, we open it up, we think it's going to be one thing and it's another and there's disappointment. This is the story of Ruth. The, the story of Ruth is so important to the Jews that they read the story and still read the story of Ruth in its entirety every Passover. Okay? So this was like their Cinderella story, literally. It was something that they would read over and over again. Or, or for you, if it was, you know, if Christmas Eve you read the night before Christmas every year, or the, you know, Luke 2 passage, or whatever it is. This was their story, because it's so good. And it starts out so bad, when they opened the box, it turned out so bad, and then it turned around into something really remarkable. It's going on during this period of time that Casey introduced us to last week, where we talked about the, the period of Judges. Where, there, where the nation was just being ruled by judges because there was, they, there was a time, it said, when they, know, they knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. This was a time when they had forgotten about God. And so there's a famine going on in the land. And we don't know if this was a judgment famine or if this was just uh, the fact that, you know, there wasn't enough food to go around at this point. But we're introduced to this guy named Elimelech. He's the very first character in the story. Doesn't last very long, but he's the primary character as we start the book of Ruth, okay? It's chapter 9 in your story Bible. I hope you got to read it this week. Elimelech is faced with a dilemma. His family is hungry because there's a famine going on. And to help you to understand what he was probably feeling, I found a clip from a Russell Crowe movie, The Cinderella Man, during the Depression that might help you to understand a little bit more about what it was like for Elimelech. That's where Elimelech was. All prayed out. Maybe that's where you are today. I wanted you to feel the emotion of this. Because what's going to happen is he's going to make a tragic decision. Elimelech's going to make a decision. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. The rock is where he could stay in the land of Canaan, where he's supposed to, where God promised them that they would, he would take care of them. 
or he could move to Moab, this place where it was a, 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 a culture that hated the Jews, it hated God, they worshipped idols, they were, they were very, very wrong in the way that they lived their life, and Elimelech has a choice to make. And it's a 3,000-year-old example of someone who did not consider the spiritual cost of the economic decisions that he was making. I, I want you to understand that. All kinds of examples. This is a 3,000-year-old example of someone who did not encounter the spiritual cost of the economic decisions that he was making, and he made the wrong one. He decided to move to Moab. We pick up at the very beginning of chapter 9. It says, the man's name was Elimelech. This is interesting because Elimelech means my God and king. Okay? If you want to name your kid Elimelech, it's kind of hard to say, but it's a good name. My God and king. Um, but my God and king decided to move to Moab. His wife's name was Naomi. Now, names are really important back then. You've got to understand that. Names are very important. Uh, Naomi's name meant pleasant or sweet, sweetheart, okay? And uh, you go on and you see the two sons were named Malin and Killian, okay? Don't name your kids that. That means sick and dying, literally. Those are the two. This is my kid, bird flu, and this is my kid, walking pneumonia. Literally, this is Te Walker and this is Texas Ranger, right? If we wanted sissy kids, we would have named them Dr. Quinn and Medicine Woman. No, you wouldn't have. You would have named them Malin and Killian. Actually, the guy in the last service came up to me. He said, my name's Malin. I said, I'm sorry, okay? Really? Now, here's the funny thing. They, they were from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, all right? One paragraph into the story, Elimelech dies. I ask you, why did he move to Moab? So they wouldn't die. What happened when he gets to Moab? He dies. You read on down, and, it's, and they got married to Moabite women, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. And after they lived there about ten years, both Malin and Killian also died. Again, why did they move to Moab? So they wouldn't die. What happened when they moved to Moab? They died. We don't know why they died. We don't know if it was judgment from God. We don't know if it was a heart attack. We don't know if they got hit by a camel. But they died, okay? And my point is, sometimes you try to take matters into your own hands, and you just make things worse, okay? That's exactly what happened here. And they all died. And so now we're left with the three women in the scenario. It's Naomi, the mother-in-law, and it's the two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah and Ruth were from Moab, okay? They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're people who grew up worshiping the false idols, and they have, moved, and they have married these boys, and they decided that they wanted to live in this culture with them, and, and that's where they are. But now the boys are all gone. And in this culture, if you didn't have boys, you didn't have anybody to take care of you. So after losing everything, Naomi decides, I'm going to move back to my homeland in Israel. I'm going to move back there because at least if I'm going to starve to death, I might as well be around my own people. And she turns to her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and she says, look, you guys are Moabites already anyway. You guys stay here. You're young enough. You could get remarried. You guys live your life. I don't expect you to follow me. I'm going back to Israel. I think that there's probably a part of this where Naomi was saying, look, I've been worshiping this God and this is not working out so good for me. So you guys go back to your gods and worship your gods if you want to. Okay, not the best way to win them over to monotheism, but at this point, she's all prayed out. That's what's going on. And I think this is really important for us to understand because there's something deeper going on inside of here when Orpah turns around and says, okay, I'm out of here, and she goes into off and we never hear about her again. 
But Ruth refuses to leave Naomi. We don't know why, but for some reason, there's a relationship that is developed here. And just notice as we read the text, there's something with God going on here too. Ruth, remember she's from Moab. She married into the family. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. So you got this little dialogue going on here. Orpah says, okay, see you later. She goes on back her way. And Ruth says, no, where you go, I'm going. Where you stay, I'm saying, your people, my people, your God, my God. Now, if you've heard that before, it's because sometimes people use that phrase in weddings. You know, have you had that in your wedding? I mean, it's okay if you did. It was taken out of context because this was a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. So if this was at a a wedding and it was taken the way that it was supposed to be, you would have the bride and the groom, and the bride would, during the ceremony, turn to her mother-in-law and say, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people. I don't think that's a tradition that's going to catch on. Do you? I mean, the unity candle's cool and the little sand thing, but I, I don't think this is what's going to happen. But for some reason, Ruth has this relationship with Naomi, this special relationship, and I believe there's also something different. I believe that there's something about God that Ruth is starting to see, the real God. Beth Moore said it this way. I think Ruth, the pagan from Moab, had more faith in God at this moment than Naomi the Israelite. There was something in Ruth that knew, despite her mother-in-law's despair, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrews, was not a God who abandoned the needy and left them bitter and alone, as Naomi claimed. Rather, Ruth trusted that this God was the God of mercy and compassion, who might even be able to love a widow from Moab, an alien, a foreigner from a cursed people. She trusted that she, even she, could run to this God, Naomi's God, that Ruth wanted as her God too, and that even though she was of foreign descent... This God would have mercy on her, and she could find refuge under his wings. She dared to believe the God of Hebrews wanted her. I think that's true. So Ruth and Naomi make this long, difficult journey back to where? To Bethlehem. Back to Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, as you're reading through the story, you're like, I know that one, right? This sounds familiar. All of a sudden, we start to realize why this story might be so important. Now, Bethlehem is less than 200 people at this point. You've got to understand that. So when Naomi and Ruth show up in Bethlehem, everybody's like, Hey, Naomi, good to see you. I'm really glad you're here. And Naomi says, Oh, yeah, yeah, it's been great. Listen, here's my lie. Don't call me Naomi, which meant pleasant, right? Call me Mara. She says, Change my name to Mara which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. This is, I'm all prayed out right here. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. You get to the beginning of this story, and it may sound familiar to you, because you may be one of those people that's feeling right now like you're all prayed out, like you, you open the wrapping paper on your present, and it wasn't what you wanted, and you're not real happy with God right now, and you feel like God has afflicted you. But I've got to ask you something. What is your story going to be all about? What is your story going to really be all about? Because you've got a choice to make, okay? You say up to this point, well, this story is about loss. It's about how she lost everything, but it doesn't have to be. Gerald Sitzer was in a car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver in a minivan, and in in this accident, 
He lost three generations of his life. He lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in one car accident hit by a drunk driver. And yet he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. I love the title of this book. And here's what he says. The experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. The defining moment can be our response to the loss. Our story doesn't have to be about loss. It could be about our response to the loss. In other words, we don't get to decide the roles we play in this world. We don't get to decide what the presents are that come to us. We get to decide what we do with them, how we play the roles that we have. And so you get to this point and you say, well, is this story going to be about loss or is it going to be about something else? Well, it depends on how they let God work in their life. And I think that it was hard for Naomi at this point to understand what was going on because she's living the lower story. But God had an upper story going on. All she could see was, I want a toy, I want a toy, I want a toy. Don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm not sweet. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. But there's a bigger story of redemption going on on the top that only God knows. We move on to the bottom of page 122. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What do we see there? Just a little bit of hope. If you look around, you're going to find a little bit of hope somewhere in your bad present. There's going to be something going on. We don't know what's going on with the barley harvest, but evidently the famine's over and there's going to be a barley harvest. Now, I know what you're going to say to me. You're going to say, well, PT, what what does that mean? They don't have any land. They didn't plant any barley. They don't have anything. How's this going to work? Who's going to take care of them? Well, let me tell you who's going to take care of them. The people of God were always charged with taking care of the poor. All the way back to the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.9 When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. And in case you forgot, I'm the Lord your God. You know, like when your dad used to say, and don't forget, I'm your dad, okay? You're going to do what I say. He said, take care of the poor. Don't take everything out of your field. Leave some there for other people to be able to pick up because we want to take care of the foreigners and the poor and the people that need us. And so Ruth the Moabite, I just got to say this, seven times it calls her Ruth the Moabite. Just, it just really wants you to understand that this was the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong place. So if you feel like this today, you're in good company. Ruth the Moabite, she was a Gentile, she was a pagan worshiper, she was from the wrong side of the tracks, she was a woman in that culture, she had all these strikes against her. She was way out. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Just because God said this didn't mean that everybody was going to go along with it. Didn't mean that everybody wasn't going to take all their grain. And so she decided to go. She understood Levitical law. She understood what was going to happen. And she said, let me go find a field and glean there. Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. Listen to this. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And wouldn't you know... As it turned out, that's that's the best line in the book of Ruth, right there, if you want to underline it in your story Bible. As it turns out, just so happens, what a coincidence. She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Interesting. 
All these things just as it turns out, all this coincidence stuff starts to happen. As you read through this story and you're opening your box and you think your box is not what you wanted and you wanted something different, you need to understand that God is in the upper story working everything out. This is not a coincidence. This is God's plan. We don't know how Boaz is related to Elimelech, but somehow he's a relative. She just popped into a field and it just happened to be a relative and this is important. Now, we don't know much about Boaz up until this point. There's actually only one thing that we know about him from studying the genealogy of Jesus. We find out that Boaz's mother was Rahab. If that name sounds familiar, Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. She was the one that helped the spies when they went in to spy on Jericho. And she was a prostitute. And she said, hey, I want to be a part of you guys. When you come in, please save my family. I want to be a part of you guys. I want to worship your God. I want to be saved. And so they promised her, and they did that. And Rahab and her entire family were saved. And Rahab is a part of the Israelite community now, and she's worshiping God. And she has a son and his name is Boaz. I think this is important to the story because as we're going to find out about Boaz and how kind he is to Naomi and Ruth, we're going to figure out that this is a guy who has a heart for people who are from the wrong time in the wrong place. And there's probably a reason for that because when you grow up and your mom tells you the stories of what she used to do and who she used to be and how God saved her, everything is different. So Boaz lets them glean in his fields, and he's very nice to them. And he even tells his guys, you know, leave a lot there for him, because I, I want these widows to be taken care of. And he's a really nice guy. And Naomi's like, this is really, really cool, but i got a better idea. Ruth, you need a husband, and Boaz is rich. So, I mean, what else do you need, right? He's got fields, he's got money. Why don't you get married to Boaz? And Ruth said, hey... This is crazy. I just met you. <laughs> so, so Naomi coaches Ruth into this really weird ritual, this really weird thing that happens next, okay? And i got to explain, the video was wrong. She didn't go into his bedroom. It's harvest time, okay? They're having a big party, and they're going to be eating and drinking. And when, when they're done eating and drinking, Boaz is just going to crash on the floor of the threshing floor. He's just going to crash in the barn. All right? He's not able to get back to the house. I don't know what's going on here. But he just decides to sleep right there on the, on the threshing floor. And so she, she, Naomi coaches Ruth and says, um, she says, here's what I want you to do. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I bet he will, right? <laughs> That's what you're thinking. It's getting hot in here, so take the blanket off. I mean, what is going on here? See, the problem is when you're interpreting this through your own culture, you're not going to understand this. This is why i got to help you to understand it, okay? This is the farthest thing from a hookup. Read on. It says, it says she startled Boaz when he wakes up, and he said, who are you? And she said, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer. You are a kinsman redeemer. Now, that doesn't make a bit of sense to you, but here's basically what happened. I mean, yes, Ruth is being a little bit forward, okay? There's no doubt about it. She's being forward. But what she's done is she's uncovered his feet, which was a symbol to, to him to say, I want for you to marry me. I want for you to take care of my family. She's basically proposing. And by putting the blanket over her, 
is the same thing as putting a ring on her finger. I know, I know you don't get this, but this is what she's doing. She's saying, we want you to redeem our family. I want to marry you, okay? So Boaz kind of wakes up and he says, Yowza, that's in the Hebrew. (laughs) The, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. I mean, he's pretty happy about this, okay? We don't know why, but he's happy about it because now he gets, a, he gets a wife, he gets to redeem the land, he has the opportunity to be who God wants him to be. Okay, let me explain the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer thing. It had to be somebody in the family of the deceased person, who of the man in the family. Remember, everything came through the men. If there was no man in your life, you were on your own. You were going to be in trouble. There wasn't anything that you could do. And God had the promised land all set up so that the promised land would stay in the Israelite community forever and ever. And so what he did is he said, listen, if you fall into hard times and you go bankrupt and they come and they take your property away, there should be a family member that can come along and buy your family back. You should have the first right to buy your family back, to buy your property back, to marry the widow and make sure that the family line continues to to happen like it's supposed to. I know you don't understand it. It's weird to us, but that was the guardian redeemer. It was a person who could, if they wanted to, choose to redeem the people in this other family, and the property that was going on. So Boaz comes along and says, yeah, all right, this is good. I'm going to do this. I like you. I, I want the land. I'm going to do all this. But first, we got a little problem. I'm not the first in line to be the kinsman, the guardian redeemer in this family. There is another guy that we've got to talk to, and he's actually got the first right of refusal on this whole Redeemer scenario. So he goes to this other guy. First he goes to this other guy. He does everything right. He goes to this other guy, and he says, hey, would you like to redeem this, uh, this piece of property because it's your right to do it? And this guy at first says yes. We don't know what his name is. When you meet him in heaven, his name tag will say, the guy who could have married Ruth. That's all we're going to know. We don't know who he is. At first he says, yeah, no problem. And then Boaz has done this brilliant job of trying to help figure out how to make this thing happen. And he says, okay, I forgot to tell you. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Okay, so it's like, it would be like you were going to look at a house that you were thinking about buying, and it was really, really cheap. And you'd talk to the realtor and you'd say, why is this property so cheap? Well, it's because... There's a mother-in-law that lives upstairs, and she's going to stay there. (laughs) And she likes people to call her bitter. Okay, so good luck with this, right? (laughs) So the kinsman redeemer said, "Um, I changed my mind. Buy it yourself. You you can handle this, okay? It's all good, all right? Now here's where we get to the romantic part. It doesn't sound like it, but here we go. Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, cue the romantic music. Today... You are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Malin, and Killian. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, the Malin's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property so that his name will not disappear from the family or his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. What God has put together, let not man put asunder. This is the wedding right here, okay? End romantic music. This is it. This is all that happened. They got married. They got married and started over. Boaz doesn't have to do this, but he says, you know what? I'm going to buy the land. I'm going to take bitter mama, and I'm going to take Ruth, and I'm going to incorporate them into my family, and I will have children with Ruth so that we can keep this family line going. 
Amazing man who has no legal obligation to do this. It's just pure grace on his part. What does he get with the deal? Well, he gets an awesome wife. All right? This is my Twitter question from yesterday. What kind of man was Boaz before this story? Ruthless. Yeah. It's funny in a junior high kind of way, okay? He was a generous and caring and godly man, and God rewarded him for what he's doing. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. I've been to, I was in Bethlehem. I was in the area last, last year. I'm going back again Memorial Day if they don't blow each other up over there. Next Memorial Day, if you want to go uh, talk to my assistant and get signed up, we're going to take a group over there. It's really awesome to be looking over the fields where the shepherds watch their flocks by night and the field where Boaz proposed to Ruth. I mean, it's all in the same place. It's so incredible, okay? It's as if this Christmas present is opened and the box looked like something else to Naomi and Ruth, but when they got on the inside of it, when they opened up and saw what was on the inside, they realized it was actually better than they could have ever imagined. More like this Christmas video. What is it, like? Liz. That's fine. I bet there's... Oh. <laughs> open it up. I did. Go open it up. No, open the box. I bet that's a lie. I bet there's something better inside it. See, what's in here? Here's what I'm saying, okay? You get a present, you, you open it up, and you think, oh, I wonder what's in here. It looks like what I wanted. It seems like the right size for what I wanted. I hope it's what I wanted. And you read the outside of the box, just like that kid did, and you read the outside of the box, and what's on there? Maybe job loss, divorce, infertility. We just try to think of some things that maybe were going on in your life right now. Loss, debt, poverty, addiction, adultery, abuse, pain, cancer, death. And you're like, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. This doesn't have to be your story. What I'm saying is before you stomp out of the room and slam the door and say, I'm done with the prayers, God. I can't take this anymore. You've got to open the box. Because when... They opened the box. What happened was the kinsman redeemer came along. The guardian redeemer, Boaz, came along. And he and Ruth had, for Naomi, a grandson. They had a baby boy, which meant that they were going to have hope now. That there was going to be a future now for Naomi and for Ruth. That there was going to be a blessing for them because there was a boy in the family. Because there was going to be salvation. When they got down and they dug into the box, they realized that what was in the box was better than anything they possibly could have asked God for in the first place. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord 
who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. The seven sons thing is fun. Seven was the perfect number. So what they're saying is, you know what? This is better than the perfect family you could have possibly imagined in the very first place. This is better than it possibly could have ever turned out. We don't have to call you Grandma Mara, Grandma Bitter. Nobody's going to want that. We can call you Grandma Naomi because the Lord actually has been good to you. Because you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. Check this. And they named the son Obed, which means worshiper, because of course they're going to worship God. This is an amazing story. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. <laughs> Come on, is that a cool story or what? Ruth's great-grandson was King David. Ruth's great-grandson was King David. Bitter Mara Naomi lady has a great-grandson who is the king of Israel. So when they decided to go back to the, do the census in the Christmas story and Joseph and Mary go back to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, it's also the city of Boaz. It's also the city of Ruth. It's also the city of Naomi. It's also the city of Rahab the prostitute. Come on! This is the family tree. Rahab the prostitute from Jericho, down to Boaz, who hooks up with Ruth the Moabite, and then it goes down to Obed and Jesse and David, and eventually we get to this Christmas story, and we end up, lo and behold, way down in the box where they couldn't see it, there's Jesus. Now, if you're listening to me today, and you've unwrap the box and there's a bunch of words on the outside of it can I just encourage you not to give up on God too soon because he's got a, a greater story going on over here than you can possibly see down at your level and I know what you see at your level is not good and it's not easy and maybe you're all prayed out today but can I encourage you to pray the same prayer that Ruth did back in the very very beginning when she told Naomi you I'm going to follow you your people will be my people and you God you're going to be my God do that same prayer commit yourself to being a person who's going to say God I'm going to trust you even though I can't see very deep down into the box yet I can't see the end of the story I'm going to trust you I'm going to follow you because you got to open the box we have communion here at this church every weekend it's not very hard to get to communion from that story today is it I mean, it's about a redeemer. I mean, th just think about it for a little bit. Boaz was a redeemer. He was the right redeemer because he came from the right family, because he had the right amount of riches, and because he was a good, gracious, loving person, and he loved Ruth. And Jesus is our redeemer because he came from the right family. He was the son of God because he had the right kind of riches, which is he lived a sinless life, and because he was a grace-filled person who loved us enough to go to the cross and die for us. It's an amazing story. I mean, here's just, I could read a million scriptures, but listen to this. Ephesians 2, you are now no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. 
You were from Moab, you were from Jericho, you were from wherever, you were a Gentile. But now you're not a foreigner or a stranger anymore. You're a part of God's household. And Paul goes on in Galatians and says, God sent his son to redeem, there's that word again, those under the law, so that we might receive full rights as children. And since you are a child of God, you are also an heir. That's what redeemers do. The price for redemption was his body and his blood that were broken and shed for us. The price for redemption was high, but Jesus loved us that much that he wanted to redeem us. So let's pray. Lord God, as we come to you right now, we thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, because you are the redeemer, we have to just say thank you to you right now for giving your life, for paying the price to redeem us, for bringing us into the family. We were from the wrong side, the wrong place at the wrong time. But you brought us into the family. You paid the price for us so that we could be redeemed. And I thank you because you, you paid the price that was dear to you so that you could love me, so that I could be with you forever. There may be people in this room today that need to accept you as their redeemer. And if you're, if you're one of those people listening to me right now, just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I want you to be my Redeemer. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm asking you to forgive my sin and take me into your family. I want to be an heir of God. How crazy that we get to have that opportunity. All of us give thanks to you right now, Jesus, because we're heirs of God if we're children of God. Don't deserve it. We just get to be there because of you, because of your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.